Jesus didn't give a damn about doctrine. He didn't care what people believed. He cared about what they did. Hello and welcome. You're listening to the podcast where being labeled a heretic is a good thing. We're starting conversations about God, politics, spiritual formation, how we got here, and how we move forward post-evangelicalism. Nothing is off limits in our conversations with scholars, seekers, activists, writers, in our quest to uncover the heart of faith. We are your hosts, Kelly and Gary Allen, and welcome to Holy Heretics. Welcome to season two of Holy Heretics. This season is all about moving forward. You may have heard us say that in a few of the other episodes, but sometimes to go forward, we have to go back. And in this case, as North Americans, way back to our pre-colonial indigenous spirituality, a spirituality of the good land that sustains us. And if you're from European descent, like most of us who live in North America, um, you and I are descendants, sadly, of colonizers, of a colonizer worldview and of a colonizer faith as well. And it's a faith in a spirituality that's been domesticated. Uh, it has dominated the land. It's dominated the conversation as it relates to who we are, where we're from, and where we're going. And it's not enough to simply repent from that colonizer faith, uh, to repent from that uh, violence, but we want to reclaim some of the deep roots that we cut down uh, by rewilding our faith through the reintroduction of indigenous spiritual lifeways and pathways. And the best person I know to help us do that is Reverend Dr. Randy Woodley, and he's going to help us today talk about the regenerative act of reconnecting with our sacred earth. Uh, Randy is a farmer. He's an activist and a scholar, a distinguished speaker and teacher, and a wisdom keeper who addresses a variety of issues concerning American culture, faith and spirituality, justice, race and diversity, and even regenerative farming. And his relationship with the earth and his understanding of indigenous spirituality is what we're going to talk about today. His, his expertise has been sought not just by us here at Holy Heretics, but on national venues such as Time Magazine, The Huffington Post, and Christianity Today. Dr. Woodley currently serves as a distinguished professor of faith and culture at George Fox University and Portland Seminary. And Randy is a Cherokee descendant recognized by the United Kitawa, I'm going to say that wrong, but Kitawa Band of Cherokee Indians in Oklahoma. Dr. Woodley and his wife are co-sustainers at Elohe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and Elohe Farm and Seeds, a regenerative teaching center and farm in Yamhill, Oregon. So, Dr. Woodley, welcome. We're glad to have you. Thanks. Uh, good to be here and uh, nice to hear a interview start with a confession. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Gets That's us all on point. the same page. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. there you go. Oh, I love it. Dr. Woodley, we are honored to have you here today. You and your wife live on the Eluhe Indigenous Center for Earth and Justice. Can you tell us more about what that is, why you started it, and why we should all tune in to what you're up to in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, so Eluhe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice and Eluhe Farm and Seeds is uh, sort of what's grown out of our life Um over the past 32 years together, we started off in uh, uh, indigenous ministry and uh, did, oh goodness, and worked in a lot of traditional native communities and hmm. uh, lots of tribal communities, doing everything sort of that you can think of in the service areas like uh, um, houseless stuff, uh, programming and facilities and um, justice stuff and taking on police departments and the courts and taking on major employers and the county. And um, we did uh, like mothers of uh, young mothers who were unwed and parenting classes and baby needs closets and food closets wow. and food, pa mm -hmm. food pantries and feeding programs and language programs and after school tutoring. And I think we've sort of done it all over the years, um, <laughs> a Red Road sobriety and, you know, all these kinds of things. And so we sort of um, got a vision back in the, Oh, I'd say it was the late 90s when um, 
like, like how do we really do this thing so it's effective? And why aren't, number one, the churches nor the government meeting the needs of the most gifted but most um, beleaguered people with post-colonial stress syndrome on mm-hmm. uh, the, the North American soil here? And so we began to strategize and come up with a new plan. And it was really part of a, a vision dream I had. Um, and... Um, Tried to create that. Uh, we first uh, traveled around for four years and mentored a bunch of folks, and uh, and then we finally landed in Kentucky hmm. and um, set up a fifty-acre farm and school and cultural center and place wow. a community and hmm. and uh, eventually lost the way that it went like gangbusters. It went great. We eventually lost that to violent pressure from a paramilitary white supremacist group and a 50 caliber oh. machine gun. Wow. And um, uh, who would Where fire that, that day and night. And that was in uh, Nicholasville, Kentucky, just south of Lexington. Yeah. Oh my. And um, we, yeah, we, we were, of course, in danger and we couldn't get uh, help from the sheriff's department or the um the state's attorney general or the justice department or fair housing. And, and we're quite sure that was because we were a native operation. Hmm. Um, and uh, so we eventually sold in the economic downturn, lost everything and ended up oh. in Oregon. So as hmm. a part-time professor and I started working, eventually became a full-time professor and then a tenured professor. And now I'm sort of working my way back down to the original vision Hmm. We haven't neglected doing what we were doing, but we've just been doing it on a smaller scale. And so now we have a final property, 10 acres, and we're building that up in uh, the foothills of the coastal mountain range in uh, Oregon. Beautiful place, incredible uh, view and sunsets, and uh, the land is producing abundantly. We've been here for 18 months. Um hmm. And uh, unfortunately, because of COVID, we haven't been able to have a lot of school. So we've been having to do online cohorts. But normally we would be having uh, schools and hosting lots of people here and camps in the summer and all those kinds of things. But uh, under these conditions so far, we've not been able to do that. Yeah. So we're really looking forward to that. Yeah. Hmm. Wow. Wow. Incredible. And we saved seeds also. The um, We don't... Um, some people save souls. I guess we save seeds and uh, <laughs> we um, we have a seed company and we take that real seriously because, you know, it's like if you don't have seeds, you're all going to die. Right. Because that's right. where food comes <laughs> right. from. <laughs> so Absolutely. Um, what, are you, what are you growing? Oh, we grow everything. I mean, just any kind of vegetable that will grow here and even some that we didn't think would. Like this year, we grew a northern watermelon that that uh, we've had trouble growing watermelons here. And, and we grew – I might be the wow. only person in Oregon who grew peanuts this year. And No uh, way. Oh, yeah. It was crazy. I, my grandfather wow. in Mississippi used to grow peanuts, but uh, nobody mm-hmm. ever heard of growing peanuts here. But we found a peanut that would work. And, and, Incredible. Uh, yeah, but we're, you know, we just kind of grow all the vegetables and um, a lot of medicinals and herbs and some staple crops and, Amazing. you know, fl- a lot of wildflowers. Yeah. Hmm. Nice. Incredible. And are you fully uh, self-sustainable in, in, your, in the community in terms of food? No. Okay. <laughs> no, we, um, we grow a lot of food. Uh, we give a lot of away, but um, we also... Uh, some food, uh, when you harvest it to eat, you get to save the seeds and some food, uh, is not edible by the time you get the seeds. So it just all depends. Mm. Um, but I think my wife probably cans close to 400 cans a year of, uh, vegetables and pickles and beets and wow. you know, on and on and Delicious. on. And on. Yeah. It's just, she's really good at that. And, uh, and so that's what we eat most of the year and we're not anywhere near sustainable at this point. Although if we had to right now, I think we could live off this land. Um, hmm. And wow. I, I don't think anybody on a small farm can really be sustainable by themselves. I think it takes a cooperatives, people who cooperate together. One person's growing one yeah. thing and another's growing, you know, um, it takes a, to sustain yourself would take like a whole lot of root vegetables because, um, you know, small farms can only produce so much. And so you got to get filled with something <laughs> right. um, while someone else might grow sheep or cows or 
pigs or if you're a vegetarian, right. you know, um, uh, maybe, uh, you know, quinoa or something like that. I don't mm-hmm. know. But, uh, yeah, so it's difficult to be totally sustainable. We were about 75% sustainable in Kentucky when we were there, I think. we, uh, Our community was, yeah. But we're just we've just been on this land for we've been only on this land for eighteen months, so we're we're just getting our feet wet. Well, I want to talk about your latest book. Uh, it's titled "Becoming Rooted: One Hundred Days of Reconnecting with the Sacred Earth," and in it, you reference this this notion that I guess I had just taken for granted, and it's basically that we are all indigenous to some place, and. As a, a white guy who lives in America, I don't necessarily consider myself indigenous, but if I think about it, my ancestral heritage goes all the way back to England, to the to Great Britain, to the the English Isles, if you will. And at some point that land is still I don't know, it's kind of connected in my epigenetic memory. There's there's meaning to that, there's a connection to that. But for those of us in the modern world, we've we've almost all but lost any kind of connection to the land or the soil that we live on today. So can can you talk about what it means to be rooted to the sacred earth and how we might change how we see the world by reconnecting to the land that, that we live on? Yeah, and but um, and remind me to come back to that. But I just want to address the earlier point you made about yourself. While um, it's very helpful to use our categories of race when we talk about racism and things like that, and white supremacy and all those kinds of things, I just want to say there's really no such thing as like a white guy right? <laughs> or a native guy mm. or uh, a black guy or a black woman, or mm-hmm. a Latino. So everybody is specifically from particular places. And they mm-hmm. were once indigenous to those places. And only um, the the thing that happened is when people came to America, we had to buy into these classifications because it was a white supremacist uh, project. And so in order to do that, you have to forget your Irish, forget your Jewish, forget your Italian, forget your Greek, forget, you know, whatever it is. Um, mm. There's a very good book that talks about the, the the plight of the Irish, how the Irish became white by Noel Ignatius. And, and everybody had to go through this sort of thing to become the normalized white citizen unless they were too different or too brown or too black. And mm-hmm. so, and, and even then it was tried. It was just that, you know, people just would never be accepted, uh, even though, you know, they they could do the same thing and pick up the same normative values of being white. And so, so in a sense, yes, epigenetically, we are all indigenous from somewhere. We may not all know where. Um, uh, and, you know, there's the all the uh, ancestry and 23andMe and all the rest are out now to help us figure out all those kinds of things. But, you know, I think that there's a, a place where our ancestors start calling us back. Mm-hmm. And I kind of see that in this uh, generation right now is what's happening. It's like, you know, hey, uh, it's enough of all the racism. We need to basically all become indigenous to the land. And so this book, Becoming Rooted, is uh, as one of my attempts to try and help people to do that, hmm. um, to become uh, in not only indigenous to their epigenetics, but to the land that they're on without appropriating or misappropriating um, the culture of the people whose land that uh, who were host people of the land that we're on. And so there's a lot of uh, uh, encouragement for people to get involved uh, with uh, finding out more about the history and who the tribes were and who they are and where are they now and what are they fighting for and what were their values and what were their stories and all of those. So there's a lot of different ways to sort of, um, become at home with the land to become rooted mm. and uh, not just one way, but there's a, a number of ways. Hmm. That is, that is beautiful. And I think reconnecting to the land and even your, your take on, on farming and seeds, I think is even lost in today's generation for a lot of us. I got myself through university by working on a cherry farm. So have deep respect for the life of farming, but I think you can get really disconnected from the earth because it's almost as if when you grow up in the evangelical context, you were never really connected. Um, it's, there's also this, this reality that, um, 
God is not really of the earth, that it's mm-hmm. almost when he come, when Jesus comes back, the earth will just be replenished. So, no need to take care of it today. <laughs> How funny? would you say <laughs> it is? It, it, it's almost like, you know what? You will restore everything. Strange, yeah. strange notion. Yes. So, in in your views and in your theology, why why is the earth sacred today or in soul today, and how does that how should that change my life in our modern world? Yeah. So uh, that's that's great. Uh, thank you, Kelly, for bringing that up. So, I think um, first of all that the earth is our first, foremost, and longest lasting teacher while we're here, and hmm. uh, Creator made it that way. Creator invested Creator's self into the seasons and the molecules and the uh, births and um, the mushroom strands and, you know, the grass and, mm-hmm. you know, all of the, the systems of sun, uh, sunrise and sunset and, you know, sleep and wake and all of those kinds of things. Uh, let's use the term God. God has invested God's self into those things to the point where uh, we call it, we have a big fancy word for that, right? Panentheism. Right. That, that God is invested in all of these things, including our own bodies. And uh, they're to be uh, understood as sacred, mm-hmm. uh, related to all things are related to one another. Um, and uh, in and we are we have a reciprocal relationship, uh, and so if the creator invests creator self into those things, then why should we ignore those things? I mean, right. isn't it funny how um, like we look everywhere else, but to the first thing that God puts down there for us to understand, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and we ignore it, and and it's not Native Americans don't have a. And, and indigenous people anywhere don't have a, um, a, a market on, you know, a relationship with the earth. Mm. It's just that uh, perhaps indigenous people remember more and have forgotten less than other people's right now. And that's mm-hmm. why we need to be looking to our indigenous teachers and elders and, yeah. and learning yeah. from them because uh, we need that. We've always needed it, but we need it now more than ever. That's beautiful. In your response, you used, let's use the term God. What term would you naturally use when talking about the earth? Oh, um, the Mother Earth. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And for, for God, I, I use creator. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. I like that. I know that's always, that's a word that I'm struggling with kind of post-evangelicalism. Um, you know, not only do I really have to catch myself about calling God a he, but like what are other non- colonized words for God that I can use, you know, creator, sustainer, um, the divine. It's, it's one of those things that's once you start down that road, it's like, okay, what am I going to do now? So, hmm. well, and just to quickly say in the book, I, at the, at the, the introduction is a very important part because that's when I'm really extending the invitation and welcoming people to this journey of a hundred days. And I use, I say, you know, whoever God is to you, whether that be, you know, from a Christian or a Buddhist or, mm-hmm. you know, an atheist, uh, istic point of view, and just you say the earth or the universe or whatever that, sort of higher power is to you. I'm not trying to leave anybody out on this because we all need to be connected to the earth. Mm. Right. I love that. And we're all spiritual people. Absolutely. So I want to come back to one of our ancient stories as Christians and get your take on it. Because when we read Genesis 1, uh, there seems to be something that has happened in sort of a dominator religion to where we established, as it were, sort of a hierarchy to where man is now sitting above all the other creatures, separate, called out, and as opposed to stewarding creation, we have, in many cases, used that command from God to to dominate creation, um, to bend it to our will, and then to to exploit it. When you look at this mythic story in Genesis, what do you think is the real meaning and the real connection between us image bearers of God and the fact that we are planted in a garden to till it and 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 not to dominate it? How, how do you how can you help us 
maybe reinterpret that story. Yeah. So the first thing we have to realize is um, that the story is a story, right? I mean, the first uh, 11 chapters of Genesis are some incredible stories. The, the, the first chapter and the first several chapters are just this beautiful balance of harmony and balance and mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the, the two lights balance each other and the water and the birds and the, you know, and, and then, you know, finally, after everything else is made, a human being is made, um, not because a human being is the pinnacle of creation, but because a human being is the only one that can fill the role to uh, be a keeper um, or to be a sustainer of that creation. We've been equipped with the right uh, um, sort of uh, tools, if you will, to uh, be able to maintain that harmony and that balance. And so, um, so in other words, it's a, it's a responsibility, uh, not a privilege, uh, and it's not to be dominated. Those, those words, um, the, the story gets corrupted in the, the bad theologizing of it. But the story is a beautiful story, and then it goes on in it, and and then you know the those uh, up to chapter eleven, those stories are about um, how harmony gets broken at every level mm-hmm. between you know um, God and human beings, between a man and a woman, between uh, families, between communities, and uh, and so we we see the the shalom, if you will, or the harmony broken. And, uh, and then uh, the rest is about how do you restore that, uh, in this case, uh, the uh, ancient um, uh, Israel and uh, would be the, the um, through calling people to shalom, to creating just laws, to creating safety nets along the way. And then, of course, when you get all the way um, through the what we call the Old Testament, um, then you get to Jesus, and what is Jesus about? He's about restoring shalom. That's mm-hmm. that's what the gospel is, right. and um, it's a. If you want to use the word kingdom, Jesus never did, but uh, that's the popularized one. Right? <laughs> then it's a shalom kingdom. It's a peaceable kingdom. It's a ki- kingdom where we're to be in good relationship with each other and with the earth, and and you know uh, everything is producing the way it should, and nobody's at war, and you know uh, each person is uh, helping the other, and those kind. Of, the, and then that's what the rest of the New Testament's about. It's about like, how do you live this out? Right. Right. And so you do it through hospitality and you do it through love and you do it through mercy and you do it through, you know, um, and, and the, but Western theology, theology has completely missed the whole point of the gospel. Hmm. It's the least understood. And I think it's the least understood because um, post enlightenment bound European peoples, don't understand how to interpret story. Hmm. And that's the problem. I mean, and the, the scriptures are 90% story. Interesting. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's what my Old Testament colleagues tell me. I mean, I thought it was like <laughs> 70% and they said, no, 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 it's 90% story. Right. And, uh, and so, if you don't know how to interpret story, you have no idea what the gospel is. Right. And so, the church, when it combined, you know, under Constantine with, you know, empire, uh, it just all, all these weird things within the Western world would just fit like hierarchies and, you know, um, mm-hmm. a binary thinking and p- this whole platonic dualism and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, all of those extreme categorization and all the weird things that come out of Western theology and have been uh, uh, baked in the bread of all of our systems, economic, religious, um, political, social, family, education. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all of those things are affected by this. And so, you know, we, it, it's time to, you know, have a do-over. <laughs> wow. What would that do-over look like for you? Well, we've got to take shalom seriously if you're on the Christian side mm-hmm. um, and understand that this is the gospel. Right. The gospel's not evangelism per se. That could be a part of the gospel, but the gospel is shalom. And shalom is about both what I do personally and what I do structurally. Hmm. Sometimes I call shalom structured love. 
Okay. So it's structuring love within our system so that they are um, um, the most equitable and uh, uh, that they can be. So, hmm. uh, you know, we're going to need to do a whole lot of work to do that. Yeah. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, it, it combines both the personal and and the public, right? I, I think there's so many conversations right now in evangelicalism that wants to reduce the gospel to some kind of privatization that Jesus becomes sort of this, you know, the secretary of afterlife affairs as opposed to <laughs> someone who is calling us to do the regenerative work of, as, as you said, bringing about, quote, the kingdom here, um, not just in some ethereal afterlife somewhere. So, yeah, it's it's a, it's crazy. One of the greatest uh, thoughts that have had impact on me: Jesus didn't give a damn about doctrine. <laughs> exactly. He didn't care what people believed. He cared about what they did. And um, if you look at that uh, scripture, I think Matthew 21, maybe uh, toward the end of the chapter, you you get the story about the two farmers. Um, I like that because I'm a farmer who had two sons and I've got two daughters and two sons. <laughs> yeah. But, the you know, he tells the oldest one, hey, go work in the field. And the guy's like, you know, damn it, dad, I'm tired of working in the field. That's what I've been doing all my life. I don't want to work in the field no more. Don't send me out there again. I'm not going. But then he goes. And then the younger son mm-hmm. says, oh, okay, yeah, I'll go work in the field, but he doesn't go. And then he says mm-hmm. to his Pharisaic friends, you know, hey, who is God most pleased with? And so it was the one who did something. It's not about correct beliefs. Right. Uh, we have this false notion that our correct beliefs will, will guide us to correct actions. And I'm not saying they can't be helpful, but I'm saying history has not shown that. Yeah. I mean, Christians have been doing shit all over the whole world, you know, ever right. since the, be- the almost the beginning, not quite the beginning. Um, since we uh, were joined with empire, since Christians were joined with empire. And, uh, you know, it's like, you know, there's no defense of it. You know, it's like, well, mm-hmm. right. uh, in its pure form, you know, and it's like, well, guess what? It's never delivered in its pure form. <laughs> right. So, right. So we all have to suffer the consequences of uh, the impure form. So um, indigenous people were not perfect by any means. North American indigenous people, lots of problems, um, lots of concerns, but very different. Um, uh, sometimes people make false equivalencies and sometimes people use extreme examples. But by and large, there was more diversity going on here and more tolerance mm-hmm. um, and more harmony, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, before uh, 1492 than there ever has been afterwards. Yeah. So I want to talk about that um, because obviously critical race theory is a conversation that's happening uh, both, you know, at the national level and then at my local school board where my priest's wife was voted out because she had the audacity to believe that we should actually tell the truth about our national sins and about our our original sin of racism and white supremacy. What's your take on this entire conversation and 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 why is it that white Americans are so reticent to want to know our history, to tell our history? And how do we fix that? <laughs> That's a good question because it smacks right in the middle of the culture wars. I mean, mm-hmm. every, I mean, that's what's, uh, you know, that's what's happening right now. Um, uh, my friend, uh, Bo Sanders and I wrote a book called Decolonizing Evangelicalism. Uh, it came out at the very end of 2019, right in the middle of uh, uh, pandemic. And we never got our launch and, mm-hmm. Um, but it's uh, basically what we deal with there is not only decolonization, but we deal with uh, in depth with CRT. Uh, we talk about critical race theory and what it's about and, and what it means and, you know, where it comes from and all that kind of stuff. And and we didn't know it was going to be a hot topic when we did this, but really later huh. we found out it, it was. Yeah. So, um, yeah, the the trying to silence critical race theory accomplishes two things. It, it's uh, basically a move of white supremacists. Mm-hmm. Um, we need to understand that in the same way that the gag rules in the 1840s were in Congress for talking about slavery. Mm. So um, you've heard of the gag rules. Um, mm-hmm. they, there were different periods of time that, that no one in Congress was allowed to mention slavery. 
Well, if you can't talk about it, do you think the problem's going to go away? Hmm. No. And so it's the same thing with CRT. It's like, and, and some people have uh, even said that you, you, um, you can't talk about intersectionality. Hmm. So what they're trying to do is take away all the tools that basically prove white supremacy and say, oh, it's all about the individual, right? right. They're not a racist or they are a racist or whatever. And, and stay away from any kind of uh, idea that this country may have in fact, and of course was in fact, founded for the benefit and privilege of, of white male uh, landowners, um, wealthier people. And that's still in our system where we're still trying to root it out. And what they're saying is you can't talk about that if you want to root it out. Hmm. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, it's in the case today with Amand Arbery, uh, whose jury selection for his murder, um, the the judge allowed basically the flag, the Dixie flag of Georgia to be shown and said, you know, do you think this flag is inherently racist? And of course, all the African-American would-be jurors said, well, of course it is. And guess what the jury is now made up of? 11 white people and one black person. So, I mean, if, if when someone says, uh, yeah, when someone says, well, uh, there's no systemic racism, like, are you are you paying attention to anything that's happening? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and and here's the thing. Here's the irony for me, is that um, a lot of people talk about racism, and okay, that's their thing to talk about racism. Um, I talk about white supremacy mm -hmm. um, because white supremacy is the reason that America has racism. So I want to go to the root and deal with that. And when I talk about it, I'm talking about specific structures, specific systems. And so it's like, you know, hey, this is not about you. This is about the systems that have been created and that we support, mm. right? And mm. so how do we, we all get together and we stop supporting those systems? And then we, what repentance is, is to turn the opposite way, disentangle yourself from all the stuff that had you in those systems and start walking in ways that free you up and that involve you in, in or entangle you, if you will, into systems of justice and systems of equity and systems of liberty. Mm -hmm. And so um, in order to do that, we have to be able to talk about systemic racism or white supremacy as it exists in structures. And, and that way people, you know, don't take it personally, you know. I mean, it's like, you know, hey, we're all part of the system. Some benefit more than others, but that's not what I'm about. I'm about trying to make sure that that my grandchildren uh, have the same rights as anybody else's grandchildren's and are treated just the same. It's it's so true. And I think it's a conversation that people are having in interesting ways and some I think really beneficial and also not to bring us back, not that I want to cut that conversation short at all, but I really want to talk to you more about the sacred earth, because I think in some ways we've also enslaved the earth. What your book talks about 100 days of reconnecting with the sacred earth, what does that look like for me today? How do I how do I start on that journey? Yeah, thanks. So um, I think to me, I'm really excited about this book. I mean, normally I'm like a, a front door kind of a guy. <laughs> okay. I I write, uh, you know, I, I wrote a book way back when and uh, like uh, Living in Color, Embracing God's Passion for Ethnic Diversity, way back when people were asking me on before podcast radio programs and they were saying, well, why did you write a book on diversity? Because isn't racism over with now in America? Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's a good I mean, question. <laughs> that was way back when. <laughs> no. Okay. And then, yeah. And so, yeah, I, I, and I wrote Shalom in the Community of Creation and I'm trying to kind of tackle these things head on. I've got a book coming out in April called uh, Western Theology and uh, I'm sorry, uh, Indigenous Theology in the Western Worldview. Wow. Where I'm sort of taking this on. And, but, this book here, I'm like, okay, let's get out of the theological realm and philosophical realm and let's just be where people live, you know? Right. Could anybody, could anybody walk with me for a hundred days from an indigenous perspective and begin to develop their relationship with the earth? And I, my idea is, is that um, that Western worldview that keeps us separated from the earth is not going to sustain our future. Mm -hmm. And an indigenous worldview will. And so what I have to offer is like, hey, will you walk with me for 100 days? And then maybe not only will you change and the people around you change, but you'll start making sure the systems change as well. Wow. And so 
that's the idea. And um, we're actually going to have a group, a national group or maybe international, um, 100 Day Journey Together. Please, international. Yes, international. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, Because great. it's going to be on my Facebook site. Yeah, it starts oh, on uh, January 12th. Okay. Yeah, January 12th, we're going to start with a Facebook Live. And everybody, you pre-order the book. Uh, you can pre-order it now. Uh, it ships on January 4th. On the 12th, we'll have our Facebook Live. And then we will um, each uh, begin to uh, write and talk about our journey and what's going on. And that Facebook will be a time to share. And, and then anybody who wants to do it in small groups, I'm going to provide uh, small group training free um, so that you can lead groups around this. So Fantastic. I'm hoping that uh, it will catch on and, yeah, people will, will start to uh, act differently with the earth. I yeah. love the practicality of that. I'm mm-hmm. trying to be practical. And, and the other thing is about that dualism, at the end of every um, uh, reflection is a sort of an action point or something to get you to move beyond just thinking about it. And so um, I'm really interested to find out from people on the Facebook uh, as people start to say, this is what happened, or I did this instead and it worked. And to kind of get people's ideas of how they're connecting, right? So it's, mm-hmm. it's not just about thinking. It's also about doing. Wow. Well, I might start a Vancouver cohort. I'm sold. <laughs> Good. <laughs> All right. That's awesome. So there's no denying that we are living in an age of ecological crisis. Um, and to me, at least as a novice, it feels like that that stems from the fact that most of us just sort of treat the earth as if she's dead already. That one, we're not connected to her. Two, she's not in lie. Uh, she's not alive or ensouled or sacred. I'm curious from your personal experience, um, have you ever had a moment where you truly experienced the earth come alive to you? Maybe to whisper in your ear or to reveal herself to you that, hey, I'm I'm not only alive, I'm connected to you. And if so, how did that mystical moment maybe change the way you viewed um, the world that we inhabit? Yeah, so I think I've always understood the Earth not as uh, um, an object to be, you know, ex- to to just extract from, but um, but along the way I've learned more things. But uh, the kinds of experiences you're talking about, oh yeah, I've had those, you know, I think much of my life. Wow. Um, anytime I'm listening, I mean, um, I think. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I don't, I don't know if, uh, what you want me to share and how <laughs> mystical you want me to be, but you know, it's like you know, this is the most natural thing in the world for uh, God to speak through the earth, right? This is why God created the earth. This is why Creator made the things that He made, so that we would understand our relationship to one another and the fact that we are all related and that we can speak to one another. And so, um, yeah, there's just so many times where uh, I've had those experiences. It's not like it happens every day, right? But uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I'm, you know, I'm. Just amazed, and sometimes it's just in the silence. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll go out in my back uh, ten acres here, and and I'll just stop and listen, mm-hmm. and I'll hear a few birds, and I hear silence. And it's not often you can really experience silence, you know. Um, and there are some places that are profoundly silent, right? Mm-hmm. And I th- I think that that's probably where the Earth is speaking the loudest. Um, so so yeah, I mean. Um, I, I feel like if I name something, it might sound trite, but you know, yes, personally, mm-hmm. I've had so many of those experiences. Mm-hmm. I do list a lot of those experiences in the, um, the book. Mm-hmm. Fantastic. I talk about some of those experiences. Yeah. So that's beautiful. I was going to ask you, it feels like silence is something that is not a part of our day to day. Um, there are, you know, Spotify, there's so many ways that we can just fill up our lives with noise. How would you suggest we practice silence in an effort to connect with sacred Mother Earth? Yeah. So, that, that's funny because uh, it's actually the first chapter out of the hundred uh, chapters uh, that I have is called Practicing Silence. <laughs> <laughs> um, and the, the, the idea is just to, to get people to center, right? Hmm. To get them to... Um, to, to basically center down and realize that there's 
like besides the people around you and the people you see that there's a whole lot more going on and that great mystery God is involved in all that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, it could be watching a sunrise sunset. Yeah. Um, just getting out. I like to sit on my back porch and watch the sunset. Mm. Uh, I got a porch swing back there. And, <laughs> Sounds beautiful. And we, you know, every sunset's different. I started off on, uh, purpose to to get people to just experience silence for maybe an hour, hmm. right? That's I think the the action point is to go off for for an hour. Yeah. So I used to I teach a class called uh, Theology and Ethic of the Land, and I used to be afraid that when I would send my students out into the cause we would go to a remote site and and do a, a retreat, you know. And I'd send them out and I'd say, um, I want you to take a pen, do, get rid of your cell phones and everything else. Take a pen and a, and a notepad. And uh, I don't want you to spend a whole lot of time writing, but just jotting things down that come to you. But I want you to just be out there for an hour, right? Mm-hmm. And then come back and share what you discovered in that hour. And, uh, you know, I, I was always afraid like, the well, they're going to come back and go, I didn't hear anything. And you, you know what? Uh, I think I've taught that class five times. No one's ever came back and said, I didn't hear anything or I didn't experience something or I didn't think new about something. Wow. They all come back That's excited cool. and refreshed and wanting to share. And yeah. and it's like, yeah, it's like, uh, you know, uh, sometimes you get that from watching a hummingbird or a flower or a bee or, you know, but it's it's just like it's all there for us. Right. Mm. Yeah. And what a what a lovely idea of a divine being who wants to create in this kind of a world for us to learn from. Now, I'm not saying that that everything in nature um, is, you know, all, you know, um, nice and without problems. And yes, animals eat each other and, you know, things die and, mm-hmm. you know, there, there are these disasters and everything else, which is all part of the learning process as well. Mm. Right. I like that. Me too. So speaking of that, um, early in the COVID pandemic, I read several articles about, quote, nature sending humans a message that, you know, the climate crisis obviously was so real and so visceral that the earth herself was <laughs> was seeking to expel us. Uh, I, I don't want to drift into like conspiracy theory area here, but from your perspective, is there any truth to any part of that conversation to where the earth is looking at us going, oh, if you guys don't, don't get your shit together, like um, things, ba- things are going to happen. How do you interpret something like that? Yeah. Well, I actually talk about that sometimes. Hmm. Um, I've written that and talked about it in some places, but not this particular book. I do mention a little bit in this, in uh, Becoming Rooted, but um, yeah, we are. um, I I, kind of laid this out uh, systematically in a May 21 uh, journal uh, article of uh, Sojourners magazine. Mm, okay. Uh, and it was called White Supremacy and the Fate of the Earth. And um, and then I think I'd done the cover uh, two years before and I had another uh, b- about something similar, but it took a, they wanted more explanation and, and wanted it directed more about white supremacy. Mm. And basically, um, yeah, so uh, it's sort of built in the system that if you start trying to tear the system apart, the system fights back Mm. and you can't win against nature. It's just (laughs) completely impossible. Mm. And so um, what's happened is that we have been, um, and I can go into quite detail if you want, but I'll just sort of start on the edges here first and say that that we have been um, basically uh, taking the place of the main energy consumers on earth. So do you know who the highest energy consumers on earth are? No, no. Yeah. I know you, you know, phytoplankton. I don't know what phytoplankton is. Phytoplankton. (laughs) Uh, I grew up in Arkansas. Come on, help me out. It's the stuff that whales eat. No way. (laughs) It's the stuff that whales eat in the ocean, right? So that's where all the energy, the most energy in the world is out there in the ocean. And and the whales eat this plankton, right? And then um, the the second most are uh, the things that that, uh, 
uh, the sort of the next stage up and it's all happening out there in the ocean. You know, they're actually creating oxygen and all this kind of stuff for us. And, and by the way, they're in trouble too. Um, mm. Right. <laughs> like everything else. But, um, but all the mammals and all the uh, humans, you know, uh, who are mammals and the rest are just what we call tertiary consumers. Right. Mm-hmm. And this is the balance of the earth. It's like the tertiary is kind of like a goat that goes around, just kind of takes a, a bite here and a bite there. And, you know, mm-hmm. and so um, there's no big effect. But what has happened uh, since the, the industrial age is that human beings have begun to replace everything else as the main consumers of energy. Mm-hmm. And how I understand that happening as the the earth it's built in the system that when we get out of our rightful place that the earth fights back and it fights back with what we're experiencing right now with climate change through um, more uh, and, and I've been keeping by the way back in 1999 I started keeping track of tornadoes and earthquakes and wildfires uh, fires and uh, uh, floods and those kinds of things and you know, it was kind of an up and down, but a kind of gradual rise so that the severity and the frequency continued over the last few decades mm-hmm. uh, to increase. Now, everybody knows that to be a fact, right? Right. But, um, you know, hottest years on record and five hottest years on records and all that kind of stuff. But I was keeping track of that way back when. And, uh, and I began to understand and think about what's going on here. And it's exactly what you said. The earth is sending us a message. If you are going to try and throw the balance off of the whole earth, well, I'm going to take you out. Wow. And it's kind of like those uh, words in uh, the Old Testament where it talks about, you know, quote unquote, sin as pollution. Um, but in this sense, it's it's like all of that. Uh, and that that says the earth will spew you out of its mouth. Hmm. And there's a couple places in the Old Testament where it talks about that, that the land has been corrupt and blah, blah, blah. Hmm. And so um, that's what's that's what we're experiencing right now. Yeah. And uh, we need to get it together if the earth is going to let up on us. And so it's so important to be doing the kinds of things that, uh, that we're trying to do in government right now and that we're all trying to do and that – but my little part is to try and get people to look at it both philosophically and then just as an everyday part of their own lives uh, and change the way we do it. Hmm. Hmm. So interesting. Our last big question for you is uh, we live in perilous ecological times, which we've just talked about. And I, it's incredible to hear your take on it. But when you look at the future of our planet, what is it that you see? I see um, right now the millennials not putting up with this shit. Yes, I am. And that one. makes me really awesome. happy. Fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. You're welcome. My gratitude to the millennials. So, um, you know, we're, I'm, I'm a young boomer, um, you know, okay, boomer. Yep. So, uh, but, <laughs> gotcha. but we did some stuff, you know, you did, you did. Yeah. We, uh, some of you did some stuff. Yeah. We, I mean, like we stopped the Vietnam. Yeah, we did some stuff. We stopped the Vietnam war. Um, okay. we brought about earth day and, Kind of those kinds of things. Yeah, good. Um, those are great. Know, did really, really gave birth to rock and roll, and that was that was, <laughs> that was good. Yeah, and, very, very uh, important. Um, yeah, some you know some women's movement stuff and some civil rights stuff, and you know, but but we didn't sustain it. Right, right. That's the problem. And so I am so excited. I didn't know if I would ever get to see another generation that said we don't want our parents and our grandparents' paradigm. Right. And that's who the millennials are right now. Mm-hmm. They're saying, no, we don't want your homophobia. We don't want your racism. We don't want your, you know, uh, treating the earth badly and all of those kinds of things. And so, you know, I'm I'm your greatest cheerleader. Hmm. Uh, Thank you. I've been out there on the front lines. I've done all this kind of stuff. I've, and now I'm just kind of a lowly teacher. Right. So I'm <laughs> out here writing and teaching and mentoring and and uh, trying to help where I can. But, uh, you know, I have a lot of hope in the millennials and uh, maybe the generation behind them, mm. uh, Gen X. And um, I'm sorry, Gen, Gen, Gen Z, Z yeah, not Gen right. X. Gen, Gen X, you know, I think they're coming around too. You know, yeah, Gen Xers are coming around. Uh, I think that, that would that would be you, right? right uh, you're, me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're not slow. Yeah, it's okay. fine. Yeah, okay. So, um, 
Yeah. So I see hope. Okay. Uh, and, um, you know, we're going to we're going to have to get these people running for offices and I see them, you know, yeah. I mean, I see uh, who just got elected as mayor of Boston and, I'm, you know, I'm excited. And, you know, um, so um, it, it's an exciting time. It's a perilous time. There's a lot of shit going down. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, I'm rooting for, I'm rooting for the millennials right now. And just a follow up <laughs> question on, on me, too. I, you know really team millennial here, <laughs> but what do you think millennials need to do and hear in order f- to move from hope to reality of our ecological world looking different? Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, you guys are really smart, you know? Okay. Um, you, you know how to do things, yeah. right? You know how to do things technically, you know how to think about things. Yeah. You're very intuitive. And, uh, um, I, I think you guys will figure it out, but, you know, maybe it's going to take a lot of generations getting together mm-hmm. and who are excited about this. There's, I think there's a lot of people like me who are like uh, forlorn uh, boomers who are like, you <laughs> Please know, help. Well, we, we still need to do it. Yeah. We're still we're still here and we want to see it done. Absolutely. You know, a lot of old hippies and things. And and so uh, maybe we just all need to get together and figure out how to get it done. Let's so. do it. I'm in. That's awesome. Yep. Well, we said that was our last um, formal question, but we'd love to end with some fun, lighthearted ones. Would you be okay if we just kind of rapid fire ask you some questions off the wall just to get to know you a little bit better? Oh, yeah. It'd be okay. Our first question is, where is your favorite place to go near you where you can experience Earth just in its beautiful state? Can you describe it to us? Yeah, the the back of our uh, ten acres here. Okay. Um, I have an area. The very back is a woods that we just leave for the uh, wild things, the animals, and and we only sort of walk back there. We try not to build anything there, spend too much time back there, and we have a lot of deer and quail and rabbit and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And I like to just walk back there quietly, um, especially around sunset, and uh, uh, and just kind of be. Um, and then the other places on my back porch swing. Oh, mm-hmm. I love that. Watching the sunset. Oh man, that sounds beautiful. That's amazing. Uh, who never fails to make you laugh? Who <laughs> never fails to make me laugh? My, uh, I have a good friend. She's on our board, and uh, no matter what tragedy befalls us, and there's a lot to do, <laughs> uh, she always ends up making me laugh. Her name's Erna Kim Hackett. Uh, uh, she has a site called Liberated Together. It's uh, women of color and liberating together. Um, and uh, she's just really funny. <laughs> and uh, she never fails to make me laugh. And um, yeah, I guess. Uh, yeah, my wife and I watch a lot of uh, comedies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And we also watch a lot of drama. <laughs> we we even watch The Bachelorette now. Oh, no dear. My daughter got me hooked on that. Oh, That's yeah. hilarious. My, I, you know, I have I have my daughter got me hooked on The uh, Bachelorette. And then we watched the 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 ones in Paradise, and now we're on the new one. And and uh, it's like let's let's get into somebody else's problems for a while. <laughs> somebody else's drama is so fun. Own, you know? so, <laughs> so what's what's one of your favorite comedies right now? That you're watching. Well, um, let's see. We we started one called Ghost. That's kind of funny. Okay. Um, but I, I tell you, the show that I'm enjoying the absolute most out of anything, and a lot of people are, I think, is Ted Lasso. Oh, yes. Okay, yes. Um, Gary I, Allen, yep, it's a sign. I know. <laughs> this is the second person has told me I have I, to watch I want to be his friend. I know. <laughs> I want to be his friend. You know, I'd like to live around that guy, and, and you know, I think he could help me. So. <laughs> That's so <laughs> true. That's so good. Um, and one more question on my end, and it's a farming one. What is your favorite item to pick out of the ground and just eat. So can can I say one more thing about Ted Lasso before oh, I say yeah. that? Go for it. <laughs> Tell us everything you want about Ted Lasso. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a whole episode. I'm trying to convince just on Ted Lasso. Gary Allen. <laughs> yeah. I think Ted Lasso is a lot like Jesus. Interesting. And I'm gonna tell you why. Yes. Because I don't know if you've ever read the book um Jesus Third Way by Walter Wink. Yes, yes, no. it wrecked my world. Yeah, yeah, I use that in teaching my classes. But um, yeah, so it talks about Jesus, like we always have these binary choices, but Jesus always finds a sort of a, not a compromise necessarily, but a way in the middle to respond that's different than you you think that he should or is going to respond. And that's why 
Ted Lasso reminds me of Jesus because he's always finding a different way to address stuff, mm. right? Interesting. And uh, so anyway, yeah, so that thought just came to me just now. But oh. um, but yeah, picking out of the ground and eating, oh my gosh, you know, like uh, I think for me probably, you know, my, my wife doesn't like radishes, but I like okay. radishes. And oh yeah, so peppery. So that's, that's probably one of my favorites. Yeah, and uh, and I just started like, what do you do with all the radishes, right? Because we got radishes all over. They grow fast and easy. And, yeah. and so I started making kimchi. <gasps> Kimchi oh, is like radish kimchi fantastic. is the bomb. It is incredible. It's yeah. such a good idea. My daughter needs to come visit you. Honestly. <laughs> yeah. You're welcome. Everybody's welcome. Mm. Last question. Uh, what's one book you can recommend that changed your life as it relates to this whole conversation about ecology and seeing the earth as our sacred mother? So, hmm. Um. I kind of came at this naturally without a whole lot of reading about these things, you know, um, and then I kind of caught up later. But what I would say is that um, my favorite um, person whom I've read and has had the longest, uh, most impact on me is a Mohawk named, uh, I'm sorry, a Seneca man named John Mohawk. Mm. And uh, he was a elder in the Seneca Nation. He, he was at the United Nations, um, you know, the uh, councils on indigenous people and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. He used to produce the Aquasasti notes. Um, there's a, he wrote a book called Utopian Legacies that's about Western civilization. And then there's a book that was sort of written about him and has some of his essays in it. It's called a John Mohawk reader. Hmm. Well, John Mohawk above, you know, everything else, world leader, spiritual, traditional, all of those kinds of things, but he's a farmer hmm. and he takes that seriously. And he talks about, the corn and he talks about the beans and he talks about farming and the land and the soil and all those kinds of things. And I, I think that inspired me to, to understand like these aren't all separate categories. They're all the same. Yeah. You know, I mean, we are so related to everything else and everything else depends on each other that the, it's just like to get into those connections and discover them is like um, mind blowing. It's it's fantastic. I love it. And so, so I think maybe his role modeling of that for me, uh, in terms of what I've read of him, I've never had the chance to meet him. He's passed away now, but um, yeah, that's been uh, inspiration for me. Hmm. Wow, that's that's really cool. Well, Randy, thank oh, you I so much. We could have gone in a thousand different directions in this conversation, and I feel like we went exactly where we were supposed to be. So just really appreciate your wisdom and mm -hmm. your candor and your encouragement for us to reconnect with the land and uh, just find a new way forward. So for, for those of us who want to connect with you more and potentially continue to be mentored by you, um, where can we find you digitally and um, connect with you that way? Yeah. So, uh, of course, uh, Bo Sanders and I do the podcast, Piecing It All Together, P-E-A-C-I-N-G. Um, we're nowhere as professional as you guys, so uh, no competition from ah. us. Don't worry. <laughs> um, and, uh, uh, and then um, I have a randywoodley.com site. And you can connect in a lot of ways. I put all my podcasts and stuff links on there. Okay. And then our organization is called uh, org. E-L-O-H-E-H.org. And uh, from there, you can get to com or com if you want to order seeds or see more about the farm. But org E-L-O-H-E-H, is uh, where you can find out all things about what's going on. And you can sign up for our newsletter. And our newsletter is what tells people like, hey, we're going to do this. And when's, here's when the Facebook group's going to start and, mm -hmm. you know, all that kind of stuff. Um, I want to make a reminder that you can pre-order uh, the book. You can also pre-order the Indigenous Theology book. Um, but um, I mentioned my friend Erna and she said, when you get on these podcasts, because I'm not one for like putting myself out front a lot, but she's <laughs> been really good at pushing me. She, But she said, pimp that book. you got to <laughs> pimp that book. And so... Uh, uh, so anyway, so I'm, I'm pimping the book. So Fantastic. I'm, I'm going to pimp we your book that. too. Yes. So just remember it's Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with the Sacred Earth. So 
we'll pimp the book too. And then we'll pimp it on our show notes too. How about that? Uh, all right. Thanks a lot. It was a pleasure meeting you guys. So. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Such so a pleasure. Much. Hope to meet you in person someday. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Thank you for joining us. This episode was produced by the Sophia Society and written by Kelly Lamb and Gary Allen Taylor. Music is by Faith and Foxholes. If you want more resources to help your spiritual formation and your reconstruction journey, head to sophiasociety.org for articles, online courses, our free ebook, and don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. See you next time.